Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening on the Gift of Freedom. Coming to you over Block Talk Radio backslash com. Also, I want to remind you that these programs are archived and are available for free at iTunes, on iTunes, at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I would also suggest that you send a friend request to Leslie Gist on Facebook, L-E-S-L-E-Y. And you will be forewarned about topics coming up on the Gist of Freedom. Tonight we're going to be talking about the history of Florida's civil rights movement. My guest tonight is Dr. Chambliss, Julian Chambliss. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening. And uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background. I'm a professor, associate professor of history uh, at the Rollins College, which is in Orlando, Florida. Um, I received my uh, training at the University of Florida, uh, my PhD there, and uh, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, my focus is uh, actually on urban development um, and culture uh, in the 19th and 20th century. And uh, a natural growth of that is my con- concern with the African-American experience uh, in the South um, and development of Southern southern race relations and Southern culture. Um, primarily, my work has been focused uh, in this area on um, the efforts of African Americans, uh, specifically around community development, and some questions uh, recently around uh, African American efforts uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century around the uh, New South era. Mm-hmm. Considering uh, recent events that are now making contemporary history, talking about the Trayvon Martin case. How does that compare in the continuum of legal cases there in the state of Florida? I think in many ways the Trayvon Martin case is emblematic of some of the struggles that African Americans have had in terms of getting equal access and equal uh, process under the law in Florida. For African Americans, of course, uh, Florida uh, was long a, a location where they face stiff, uh, racism um, and failure in terms of the legal system to protect their rights. And this is one of the things that really is 
under-discussed when we talk about the civil rights movement um, in, in the South. A lot of effort, a lot of emphasis is placed on places like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. But at one time, Florida had, for its population, the highest rate of lynching of any state in the South. And there was quite a great deal of activism uh, on the part of African-Americans to sort of press the rights and violent reactions uh, in opposition efforts, um, even though Florida is the uh, home of um, notable civil rights figures um, like Jane Wilder and Johnson and uh, lesser-known but very important figures like Harry T. Moore, um, their struggles to try to transform Florida uh, into a place that's more equal for African-Americans um, was never easy, and the lingering consequences of that are still questions about race and access African-Americans face. You know, you wrote um, an essay that our producer, Leslie Gist, read. It was an essay article relative to Florida and the Trayvon Martin incident. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of that essay slash article? Yeah, what I was talking about there uh, goes back to what I feel was a consequence of a, a long-standing history of violence in Florida. Um, the Trayvon Martin case, it, to me, fits neatly within a broader context of uh, the devaluation of African-American uh, self, um, how it's perceived and how it's acted upon in, in the law over time, and this grows from a kind of ingrained uh, racism, institutional racism, that places African-Americans in a secondary position. And people in Florida have fought against that, but each one of those efforts, uh, be it uh, the effort uh, to uplift in the aftermath of the Civil War, where African-Americans in Florida pursued the creation of their own towns and communities, but then faced um, whenever there was an accusation of, of crimes against white people, violent reactions from uh, white uh, from the white residents in the area. So I, I spoke of the, the Rosewood incident in this regard. Um, that was devastating for African American community building, loss of property, and loss of life. That same pattern continues later on into the 20th century when African Americans under the leadership of a figure like Harry T. Moore, who was the field secretary for the NAACP in Florida um, in the 1940s, uh, really emphasized African Americans' registered to vote as uh, Democrats so they could have a direct influence on the electoral process. And for his efforts, uh, he was targeted and, and killed in a bombing. Um, but I also talked about uh, the sort of rise of vacancy laws and really talked about a kind of holistic oppression associated with African-American uh, experience that has a lasting effect on how African-Americans are perceived. And, mm -hmm. and this, I think, is one of the things that makes it very difficult for uh, justice to be achieved in the case of, like, Trayvon Martin. Well, in that article, um, you had uh, points in chronological order. Um, for example, Harry T. Moore. Can you go into a little bit of depth about Harry T. Moore? Sure. Harry T. Moore was a former school teacher, 
I was a school teacher. Um, in the 1930s, uh, he banned together with a number of other school teachers and pressed for equal pay. Um, his court case uh, drew the attention of the NAACP. He got involved in the NAACP, eventually became uh, a field secretary for the NAACP, and he helped set up a number of NAACP chapters across Florida. In fact, there were 63 chapters, uh, NAACP chapters in Florida, organized by Mr. Moore. Um, he also created the Progressive Voters League, which was a, a separate organization because the NAACP is apolitical. Progressive Voters League was, in fact, expressly political and advocated that African Americans use their political rights and have their political rights, political power, influence the electoral process. So when uh, Thurgood Marshall was successful in having the white-only primary um, deemed unconstitutional, Harry T. Moore championed African Americans registering to vote and as Democrats so they could participate in the primary uh, across the state and so they could influence the election in a way that would be definitive. Moore's efforts as leader of the NAACP and the leader of the Progressive Voter League meant that he was willing to advocate very strongly for African Americans to have their legal rights, not special rights, sometimes characterized by his critics, but their legal rights. They would be protected as citizens of the United States and be allowed to pursue the rights that were afforded to them. He wrote letters to the governor um, talking about uh, the lynching of, of youth like, uh, like Claude Neal, uh, protesting the Groveland case where four youths were accused of, of raping um, a white woman and were arrested and eventually um, in a horrible incident were in, being transported uh, by a sheriff and, and two were shot and one was killed. Um, he was a, a, a strong advocate for the legal rights of African Americans. Eventually his efforts were successful in that Florida had um, by the late 1940s, the highest level of African-American registered voters at that time in the South. But he himself um, was the victim of a bombing, um, often characterized as perhaps one of the, the last bombing of a, a series of bombings that started in the 1950s um, called the Florida Terror. And Excuse me. Uh, speaking of bombings, um Harry Moore was uh, the first uh, NAACP activist to be murdered in the country. He was, yes, he was. He was. He was. He was killed. Uh, often, Negger Evers is associated with with um, this, but he was killed uh, much earlier in 1951. So he was the first, the very first NAACP official killed, and and his story kind of slips through the cracks. But it's very indicative of the Florida story. I think. Many people think of Florida um, really sort of or, oriented around a very limited uh, sense of the civil rights movement. They think about Martin Luther King, perhaps in St. Augustine, but there's actually a steady, steady effort on the part of African Americans um, to try to press for their their rights, to try to improve themselves. Um, here in Central Florida, for instance, um, the home of Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Edenville, Florida, with a okay. And before, we go there, before we go there, you mentioned earlier 
about a primary election versus a general election. Um, talk to our listeners a little bit about the significance of the primary versus the general election there in Florida at that particular time. Well, one of the ways that Southerners uh, curtailed African-American participation in uh, the electoral process was to impose a series of, of rules and regulations designed to prevent them from voting. And that these re- rules and regulations, I might add, prevented white people from voting as well, but they were detrimental to African-American voters. Many of these are things that your listeners are familiar with, things like the grandfather clause or um, uh, a literacy test. But the Wyoming primary was a rule that allowed for an electoral process, you know, they have primaries and then we have a general election. The primaries are important because, of course, those are the elections that allow for the candidates that will be running for office to uh, run in the general election. So you have the primaries to sort of sort out the possible candidates. And one way that uh, African Americans lost their ability to participate in the process was that Southerners argued that um, political organizations like Democratic Party were private institutions, and therefore they did not have to be open to African Americans. So they argued that they could have members-only processes. So basically this prevented African Americans from influencing the candidates that would be available for voting in the general election. So by having a white-only primary, you created uh, an inability for African Americans to affect uh, the candidates at the primary stage, and it effectively predicted the outcome of the election being in favor of the segregationists. Um, With that coming to an end, uh, when that was challenged in court, and, and proved unconstitutional, African Americans could still could join um, the Democratic Party, but of course they faced other obstacles that made it also difficult for them to vote. So the Wyoming primary wasn't the, the only obstacle, but it was one of the, the obstacles that were in the way of African Americans. So after they were allowed to join the Democratic Party, were they then allowed to? Were they ever allowed to run for office? No, there there are few examples in, in my in my knowledge of uh, any African American Democratic candidates in the South. African Americans face numerous obstacles uh, to participating in the political process. Um, they would not be, of course, welcome in the Democratic Party. And this is one of the things that made Harry T. Moore uh, both an innovator and a provocative agitator in the minds of uh, Southerners by advocating African-Americans participate in the Democratic Party, he makes them a, a, a group that could affect the outcome. And so moderates within the party um, might start to, to waver. As moderates in other parts of the state, there was always this question of like moderation within the Democratic Party. What does it mean to be moderate in the South can can vary greatly, but anyone that wasn't 100% in favor of segregation was in the minds of many Southerners a moderate. And, in fact, modern, moderate Southern Democrats 
uh, faced a huge backlash with the emergence of a, a civil rights movement um, in the 1950s because they were seen as weak on the question of race. And they were often, especially early in the 1950s, they lost elections because um, Southerners did not want them to be weak and more aggressive uh, politicians that promised not to allow any kind of change in the racial climate won elections uh, in the aftermath of, especially the Brown decision, which, which triggered a, a huge sort of conservative surge across the South. Speaking of battling the uh, Democratic Party, um, talk to us a little bit about Fannie Lou Hammer and how she fought the Democratic Party and what success she acquired there from. Well, Fannie Lou Hammer is one of the forgotten uh, individuals of the civil rights movement. Um, it's worth noting, I think, more uh, broadly that the civil rights movement is often considered at some level um, a male-dominated movement. The, the key figures are, are people like Martin Luther King or Fred Schultz but in fact, there are a large number of women and youth that are very active. And Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was a leading civil rights leader uh, who initially worked with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, and then went on to found uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And she was very, very vocal in her efforts to especially in the summer of 1962, uh, to really press for African-Americans uh, getting voting rights. And as a member of the, the Mississippi Freedom Party, challenged the Democratic Party to allow African-Americans, of course, um, to be a part of the political process. Um, she opposed the, the Mississippi Party's all-white delegation um, to the 1964 presidential uh, election, um, and she really brought uh, a national focus to the civil rights struggles for African Americans in the Deep South, in Mississippi, which, is, as, as we know, now we can, we know very well that Mississippi is one of the, one of the harshest places, but she really brought national focus to that, and, and at the very famously, uh, during a televised session of the convention, um, berated the failure of the Democratic Party, the failure of, of, of the American system, and went on herself, of course, to run for, for Congress in Mississippi, uh, but wasn't, wasn't able to win. But really created, I think, the space for, Af for African Americans to really challenge the Democratic Party of inability and failure to sort of like recognize African Americans uh, in that crucial period. And was she able to, there were two delegations competing for seating, and um, I believe she made a historic uh, testimony on the floor there at that convention in Atlantic she City. She did. She did. And, and it was televised. And, it, uh, and I urge people um, to go to YouTube. There's great footage of her um, calling attention to um the, the plight of African Americans on the floor, and, and as you're right, there, there are like two different uh, delegations, one from her party and one from the sort of traditional Mississippi party at the commission at the time. Another controversy for the Democratic Party uh, in this period. 
I want to remind our listeners that they can hear the testimony of Fannie Lou Hammer if they Google Fannie Lou Hammer, S-H-A-M-M-E-R, and the gift of freedom. Put that into your Google search engine, and uh, we'll be able to hear uh, Fannie Lou give it to them at the Atlantic, uh, the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City. Now, um, we started with Harry T. Moore um, of the list of people within your essay. Uh, who was the next individual, prominent civil rights individual there in the state of Florida? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, what incident or incidents? Well, you know, I was primarily talking. Well, I think the the next sort of like prominent incident is, is really related to Martin Luther King and, and the incident in St. Augustine. Um, you know, Harry T. Moore is the 1950s incident, and Martin Luther King is the 1960s incident. Um, the incidents I was talking about in my in my uh, little essay there were all incidents prior to the modern civil rights movement. At some level, these were the things that I think play in the black the background when people talk about the civil rights movement in Florida. By the time we get to the modern era, and by modern I mean after sort of mid nineteen fifties, much of that story is is, is well known. Um, my concern, especially in 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 light of the the incident with Trayvon Martin was that those those kinds of debates are not the debates that are really sort of shaping how people perceive uh, that case. And so that that debate is really a debate of perceptions, and those perceptions are not necessarily connected to the Jim Crow segregation that was attacked by civil rights activists after 1950. They go back to questions of how people perceive uh, African Americans more broadly, right? So the sort of de facto uh, racism of the period is really not the question. Uh, the bigger question to me, um, the question I was trying to get at um, in my essay was, is there a um, kind of socialization associated with blackness in Florida that precludes the normal operation of the law because black people's persons are marginalized, and my argument is that there is a history of violence attached to African-American personhood that has nothing to do with some of these more blatant questions of segregation, but much more of a desensitization associated with the black, black experience that doesn't get spoken about. Um, and and those, are the, those are the incidents that were really sort of like motivating that, and uh, it's true after after Harry T. Moore, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, the efforts of, of, of folks like Martin Luther King and um, the efforts of uh, even like white allies like Stephen Kennedy or um, the activism of uh, the Congress of Racial Equality in, in places like Miami, all those things are part of a, a more better understood and more widely understood um, civil rights narrative. And so that was the that 
that narrative, I think, is, is, is very well understood. This earlier narrative, uh, I thought, is, I feel is, is not well understood, but I think the two are relating in a way. You mentioned violence, and uh, immediately Rosewood came to mind. Um, tell our listeners, because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there, particularly the younger listeners, who don't uh, know about Red, uh, Rosewood. And do you have a link or contact where people can read about Rosewood? Sure. There's um, uh, a number of sites. Um, there's a um, Rosewood History, which is www.rosewoodhistory.com, um, which tells a little bit about the incident. Uh, Rosewood was a uh, a town in Levy County, Florida, uh, which is sort of like uh, northeast, um, north, northeast Florida. Um, it was a, a, a small black community. Uh, it prospered in part because of the, the railroad and the, and the feeder industry in the area. Uh, it was a, a hub at one point of uh, timber and, and turpentine agricultural activities. Um, it's a very common story. Uh, one morning in, I think, 1923, um, a woman was, uh, claimed she was assaulted by a black man, and uh, residents of a nearby uh, community to Rosewood um, used this as a, a justification to go on a rampage and attack and destroy the town, uh, killed many people, and drove out many of the residents. Um, this is very similar to the Springfield incident um, in Illinois. It's very similar, similar to the Tulsa uh, riots in Oklahoma. Um, the town that would be, that would be Greenwood in Tulsa, right? Um, well, it's the the area around Wall Street. I I actually don't know the exact yeah, area. It was called Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street, yeah, exactly. Greenwood, which was known as Black Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, excuse um, me, but I want to get back to your article and uh, a link to your article to the essay that you wrote in reference to. Trayvon Martin and the History of Violence in Florida. Is there a link where our listeners can read your article? Sure. Um, there is a link. It's on um, something called the Digital Journal, and it's www.digitaljournal.com, and then type in a history of violence, and you'll be able to find it. And that's www.visualjournal.com. And then type in violence. A history of violence. Okay. Um, was there a movie about Rosewood? Um, there was, yes. There was indeed a movie about Rosewood uh, that came out in the 1990s. Um, and, in fact, Rosewood is uh, an important example because eventually uh, – the survivors, the descendants of the survivors of Rosewood, uh, were compensated by the state of Florida. Um, and you can read up, up about that as well online at rosewoodhistory.com. Okay. 
Oh, and that's a, they were compensated. They were compensated, depending on – it was a complicated formula, but you can read the state proceedings related to the compensation uh, of the Rosewood survivors. And that happened um, uh, in, I think, 2000, uh, where they were finally awarded compensation for um, the destruction of the town. And we can probably get to that by Google as well? You can. Uh, if you go to... Um, The State of Florida Library, um, there is a actually a uh, a bibliography related to uh, Rosewood. So the, the Florida Department of State Division of Library and Information Services has a, bi a, bi a bibliography related to Rosewood um, articles, and you can find a link to um, that legislative report that talks about the compensation and all the other the things that have been reported about Rosewood over the years. Okay. You also earlier mentioned uh, the American writer Zora Neale Thurston, mm -hmm. and she was from an all-black town, Eatonville. She was, yes. And, and that, um, yeah. they were that the person out there to get electricity. Is there anything else that town is noted for at all-black township? Uh, well, Eatonville is the first incorporated black township uh, of African-Americans in the United States and remains to this day um, all incorporated African, primarily African-American township. In a lot of ways, much of Zora Neale Thurston's politics and worldview were shaped by her experience growing up in Eatonville, which as a direct line to, I think, uh, the dominant sort of political and social uh, dialogue of the post-Civil post War African-American experience. It was a town that very famously, of course, had a, a boarding school called the Robert E. Hungerford Boarding School, which was founded by graduates of Tuskegee Institute. Uh, it was the only educational institution for African-Americans in Central Florida uh, if they wanted to continue in school um, to really get an education for much of the early part of the 20th century, you, you went to Hungerford School. It was a boarding school. Um, you either went there or you had to go all the way to Jacksonville if you were in Central Florida to try to get an education, uh, anything beyond, like, you know, grade school. Uh, so it was very, very well known uh, within the African-American community and also because of its connection to the Tuskegee um, graduate. It was it was featured in in uh, two books by Booker T. Washington. Um, people that were very prosperous. They were farmers and and business owners. And he, he featured them in uh, two of his books, working with working with the hands, where he talks about the value of industrial education. And also um, his book on Negro business people. He has some great pictures of um, the town of. Uh, Eatonville, the mayor's house, uh, um, and uh, city hall or city jail. Uh, some 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 very interesting pictures where he traveled around um, in the 1890s and early uh, 20th century, looking at the sort of accomplishments of African Americans um, 
and documenting uh, their ability to actually succeed despite some of the obstacles uh, that they're facing. And so uh, Eatonville intersects with many of the the efforts of African Americans to improve themselves and explains at some level how uh, a kind of personality like Zoya Hurston of course, go on and become very important in Harlem Renaissance and in many ways was considered at the end of her life a kind of black conservative because she didn't see a necessarily, necessarily a need to desegregate, and that makes perfect sense because she grew up in a world where African Americans were doing it for themselves, that they were, in fact, perfectly capable of being full and productive people in the society, and they did not require any kind of help from outsiders. And so... Um, the logic that she applied in her writings about the sort of value of African-American experience makes perfect sense because of that upbringing. Were there any other notables from Eatonville that reached uh, national prominence? No, no. I'm sure someone's going to call in and go to die. Uh, she is by far the most famous uh, resident from Eatonville, to my knowledge. Um Edenville itself, I think, is, is very well known um, in the national uh, dialogue, especially in the early 20th century. But she becomes its favorite daughter. Uh, her fame, uh, in many ways, eclipses the town's fame. Uh, and, and I can think of no other uh, individuals that, that, that hail from Edenville that have, have had a, such a in, important mark on, on popular sort of that like national dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, did they not put up a placard um, when you come into Eatonville that says the home of Zora Neale Thurston? Oh, uh, Eatonville is, is fully embraced there and it is the home. Uh, Eatonville is the, uh, has the Zora Neale Thurston Festival every year. I mean, I think this is its 20. This last year was his 27th or 28th year, uh, which is a, a literary and cultural celebration that lasts for a week in, in January every year. Uh, it is attended by thousands of people. Um, her home site is well marked, and um, you know many of the uh, institutions uh, that she makes reference to in her work uh, remain there, the St. Lawrence Church in particular, uh, which has uh, great art by uh, very well-known artist named Andre Smith, um, uh, are still there. And, and even though I think uh, continues to, to celebrate uh, its legacy uh, as an African-American community uh, that has, has always been in, in, in the minds of many people, like they are still um, what they intend, intended to be. And, and still have very strong sense of themselves as a um, uh, community. Twenty-seven years—that's quite a history. Um, has it already occurred this year, or is it yet to come yeah, up? Yeah, it, it happens in January. Uh, so if you if you want to if you want to see um, if you want to attend next year, uh, I think it's the the uh, I don't know the dates on the top of my head. But it's it's usually late in January. But I can I can get those dates for you. Hold on one second. Okay. Well, I'm sure that if uh, that's another event, we can probably Google 
Yeah. Come up with some information. It is. Um, it is. Um, it is a huge festival. It is. Um, this last year was the twenty fourth year, and twenty fourteen. Uh, the dates. You can find it at zorfestival.org. Zorfestival.org. You can find out all about it, and they have programming for all ages, uh, and it is a, a full week of events. And people people come from from all over to see it and, and celebrate Zor. And in fact, uh, the the creation of that that festival was a, really at some level saved modern Edenville. Um The story is, is pretty well known. At the time, um, back in the 1980s, they were playing on widening. Uh, Kennedy Boulevard, which is the sort of main street in, in Eatonville, to a four-lane highway. It's a two-lane street. They wanted to widen to a four-lane highway, and the residents recognized that this would really destroy um, the community, and they banded together and created an organization to preserve Eatonville. And one of the first things they did was uh, organize the festival to, to raise awareness of the history and identity of the community um, outside of its it's borders, and they've been very successful. Um, and I urge if people, if they are fans of the Wendell Hurston or fans of the Harlem Renaissance, that uh, they should definitely consider visiting the Eatonville during the festival. Uh, it is a celebration, but it's also an educational moment. Where we have a lot of programming for kids, uh, trying to tell them about the African-American experience, celebrating um, the accomplishment of African-Americans um, as uh, community builders, as, as professionals, um, as uh, you know, fully functional citizens of the United States. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, legacy that, that comes from the founding of the town, you know, their commitment to, to make a better 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 future for themselves, which they succeeded in, arguably. Okay. Let's move back to uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, How do you view his legacy? What's going to be Trayvon's uh, legacy there? Well... Not only in Florida, but across the United States. You know, I think one of the things that this this tragedy does is it forces us to to assess where we are in terms of race relations. And this has been one of the paradoxical problems for African Americans with the the election of President Obama. Like, are we a post-racial nation? And the answer to that question, I think, for a lot of people is a lot of people's color is no. Um, In fact, color still matters. But it matters in a way um, that's sometimes very hard to identify. It's some, in some some level, it's, it's, it's hidden in the minds of a lot of people. And so the facts of this case, the, the clear sort of assumption on the part of people of color and other people, not just simply people of color, on, on you know, how this case should have, should have been settled and, and didn't 
the horrible outcome forces people to go, how can you arrive at that kind of decision? And I think that this is going to be a discussion that's going to be ongoing because the assumption, the assumptive power of race still persists. Um, this is not a problem that has gone away because uh, a person of color was elected president. There is still assumptions that people, why people make about people who are uh, of color. And, and, and the Trayvon Martin case makes it perfectly clear. Everything that you heard about Trayvon, it doesn't matter because when George Zimmerman got up his car, he didn't know any of that. He just saw a kid and he followed them because he felt like he should follow that kid. Um, he was following, not that, not Trayvon, he was following the mythology of, like, dangerous black men. And he had a gun and he shot him, right? So there's not, the debate here is about that mythology. Like, we all know that, you know, it's, it's illegal to, to shoot people. You, you have to create a context to, to make it okay and his context was where he was he was black and he was in my neighborhood, which would not work if you said that exact same thing any other place. So I, I think we have to have that discussion. I understand that the uh, Supreme Court of the state of New York um, has struck down the stop and frisk, and a number of... Uh, Listeners attributed uh, that to the Trayvon Martin case. Were you aware of any other um, areas in the country, any other states that this case has triggered some dialogue and possible court decisions around stop and frisk and stand your ground? There is a, a tremendous effort on the part of um, many states around the question of stand your ground. Um, it's been shown definitively in, in recent research that states with stand-your-ground laws have a higher level of um, incident of people of color being shot. And the Trayvon Martin case has made that already established fact even more pressing for many Americans. Stand-your-ground law, in combination, arguably, with somewhat lax gun control laws um, has been detrimental to the health and safety of, of people of color. And it's worth noting that there have been at least two incidents similar of, of a white person shooting a black person or a black person being shot, um, and they they claim staying stay your ground. Uh, there was an incident in Jacksonville where a white man shot a kid, uh, a young man, um, ostensibly for, for playing music too loud. Um, I'm not, I don't know all the details. Of this particular oh, yeah, thing. I remember hearing about that. Um, and and did not face prosecution. Ironically, and, and this is the, the telling thing, you know, an African-American woman who had been a victim of domestic violence who shot a gun in the air and, and warning um, tried to use standing your ground as a defense and, and failed to do so, right? So that defense did not work for an African-American woman who had a history of domestic violence who was trying to protect herself by shooting a gun up in the air. 
But for some reason, staying around worked for George Zimmerman, who arguably followed, if not stalked, an unarmed person and then, for whatever reason, in the altercation shot him. So there is there is tremendous, tremendous effort and discussion around repealing Stand Your Ground and and I I had heard that 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 that, that decision had come down about stopping first and that that is good, um, but I think the last word I heard from the governor of Florida related to Stand Your Ground was that no, we're not. There's no reason to revisit, revisit it, um, but I, I think that there's going to be tremendous activism to try to revisit it because it's clear that that law creates a context, I think, um, for the kind of violence that can lead to tragedy like Trayvon Martin. And so I'm I'm hoping that we will see. Um, I know there are a lot of petitions. Um, there's been much discussion um, and I think Trayvon Martin's parents have emerged as very powerful spokespersons for um, trying to address the, the kind of violence uh, that, that led to this tragedy. So I think that this is one of the things that's going to be a consequence that we are going to see some some serious. Uh, the things. young ladies, the young ladies' case that you mentioned, um, seems that her case is not as clear cut, and that. Uh, she wasn't at her home. Uh, she fled the scene, and she was a trespasser. So, stand the ground is not as firm in that case as it would have been in Trayvon's case. Now, speaking of um, other actions, um, there in Florida, you have some students that are occupying the state house. Is that still we do? We do. We do have students occupying the state house. Um, the governor is not happy about that. I I, I don't know if that, um, the last I checked, I have not had a chance to check recently if they are still occupying the state house. Um, but I, I think that their efforts have brought, initially brought a lot of attention to this question of, of staying your ground, which I, is one of the things that is in question for a lot of African-Americans and, and other people. I mean, it's not just simply a question of African-Americans um, coming out of the Trayvon Martin case. But our Republican-controlled legislature uh, has been resistant to uh, dealing with any kind of discussion around this issue. And whether or not that's going to change is, is going to come down to uh, consistent efforts like 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 the sit-in that the students initiated um, and other efforts. Uh, I I think that the there is there is a, a burgeoning effort to like boycott the state of Florida. Um, uh, famously, that Stevie Wonder talked about boycotting Florida. Um, that dialogue seems to to be of con- some concern to to some people. In, in the in the government, um, but I think they're also they're hoping. I think I know the governor is hoping that this will all die down. But there there seems to be a, a constant uh, focus on trying to do something. So we'll have to see what's going to happen. 
Yeah, there was some concern amongst black leaders nationally about a boycott because it would impact the jobs that a number of black people hold there in Florida. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think that that is a somewhat... I don't think that that should to prevent people from boycotting Florida. I, I say that in the sense that um, our economy is, as as you rightly point out or alluded to, is an economy associated with um, tourism. But you have a choice about where and how you're going to spend your tourism dollars. Um, if you want to come to Florida and, for instance, um, avoid some of the more robust uh, tourist areas and go to more out-of-the-way places uh, or, for, for instance, like pursuing some sort of heritage tourism that focuses on African-Americans. We actually have an African-American history trail that you can follow that will take you to notable sites of African-American history across the state. Um, that's very different than not going to Disney, Right. And if you wanted to really make it clear that you are displeased with the sort of a social political climate that the government is promoting, they're not going to a corporate uh, resort like Disney or not going to Universal. That is really going to make a difference. Not having a um, big convention in Miami. So if you're a member of a national organization that doesn't have a big convention in Miami, that's going to make a difference. And you don't need to necessarily do that for 10 years. You can do it for a, a, a few years, you know, two or three years, and that that will be a problem that the governor can't ignore. Like the governor can always say that these are just a few people who are malcontents that are protesting. Um, and, again, this is, becomes a question of race because, of, you know, the loudest voices. Oh, yeah. People That's an old thing. Right, but the fact of the matter is that there are plenty of other people who are also upset with, about this. Um, and there are other things that you could do, um, uh, and I would advocate well, that heritage tourism thing might be might be a way if you want to interact, inter- intersect with the, uh, the smaller business person in Florida. But... Um, I am mindful of of the possibility of of lost jobs, but I'm also mindful that without some sort of pressure, people aren't going to do anything. And if we go back in time, faced with the same kind of question, um, the people who eventually said, well, okay, we're going to, like, suffer the pain now for a better future or or people that went out and marched in the street, even though there was concern about the economic implications of uh, that kind of social protest. Um, and so I, I, I have to agree that, that that lesson in history is probably the lesson that I would advocate people follow because dialogue alone doesn't seem to be working. You know, this whole issue, this whole case, uh, the Stand Your Ground case, and it started with, uh, there in Florida, you know, there was a refusal to arrest uh, Zimmerman right away. 
the jury pool somewhat tainted. One of the jurors making a book deal, apparently before a decision was ever made. Uh, the jury not sequestered. Uh, folks have been very critical about the judge's jury instructions, where yeah. the judge mentioned the stand your ground, but failure to mention the initial aggressor portion of that law. Right. And yeah. then the failure of the prosecutor to mention any of Zimmerman's previously alleged violent and aggressive uh, history. Right. Uh, so Florida, with that example, and that example alone, and, and the follow-up therefrom has a lot to uh, to answer for in a lot of people's opinion out there. Is there any well, way that... Well, go ahead, go ahead. I think that Florida um, remains a, a place where um, it it struggles with the full uh, implications of institutional actions. Um, I have a a colleague that that uh, studies anthropology, and she's talked about uh, this in some of her her research that Florida lags behind um, many southern states and things like uh, spending money on on mental uh, health. Uh, Florida lags behind states on uh, levels of education spending. Florida lags behind um, on questions of uh, infrastructure spending and so on and so forth. Um, In the context of the region, I think Florida makes more sense but there is also a, a lingering question in the minds of Floridians, you know, always making the best decisions uh, for the long-term health and safety of everyone in the state. And it's very telling that the popular dialogue around Florida is that it's a crazy place, that it is, in fact, a place where, bad things can happen. And this goes all the way back to the presidential election in, in 2000. Um, but it, it remains a constant sort of reference point. And for us that sort of like live and work here, especially for for us, you know, that have jobs in education and, and know a little bit more about the state uh, beyond that sort of surface, there are reasons for that that go to deeper structural issues, decisions that are made and have been made and repeated to be made, repeat themselves in terms of how people approach um, the health and safety issues of the state. And those debates, I think, are important debates to have. And I I think African Americans around issues like Trayvon, but, but also around questions like education, also around questions of health. Could you go into a little bit of depth on that election fraud? Well, very famously, of course, um, the 2000 election uh, was very close. Um, Palm Beach County uh, hanging chads. I mean, this is a story that I think many of your listeners are familiar with. Like, the, you know, the 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 election was very close. But what people probably are not familiar with is that 
um, those incidents in the southern part of the state uh, were, at some level, one example of really broader questions. In Jacksonville, for instance, uh, it was reported that something like 5,000 votes, and remember that the, the, the margin of error in, in Palm Beach was something like two, 200 votes or something like that. So in Jacksonville, 5,000 votes for African Americans were, were tossed out because there was some question about those votes, tossed out by the supervisor of elections. Um, there were, and continue to be even after the 2000 elections, questions about um, voter access. Uh, our current governor shortened the span for early elections, getting rid of very famously and very tellingly one Sunday. And, you know, the traditional African-Americans would go to church and then all trace out and then go do early voting on a Sunday. And very deliberately, some would argue, the the effort on the part of the governor to shorten uh, early voting had a direct and detrimental effect on African-Americans. Now, voter advocacy groups in the state um, fought against this. Um, there was a tremendous effort on the part of the Democratic Party, the Obama um, election, Obama for election group to register African-American voters. They were very successful. Um, but in Florida and in other southern states, questions like can you uh, restore African-Americans who have been released from prison, can they get their uh, voting rights restored? Well, the Republican administration has resisted this repeatedly, and uh, people have been advocating for it. There is a an effort for a new voter registration or voter ID act that many um, voting rights advocates say is discriminatory, and it was put on hold prior to the election. But that is another thing um, that I suspect we will see come back up in the legislature uh, in this coming year. So. Florida, and this is not just Florida, we have similar kinds of, like, initiatives in, in Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina. But clearly in Florida, because of our past history with the presidential election, um, there is some question uh, about the somewhat seemingly systematic attempt to prevent African Americans from voting, which, again, goes back to uh, – the state's history because in the aftermath of um, Reconstruction, Florida was at the, at the forefront in the 1890s of coming up with ways to prevent African-Americans from voting after Reconstruction came to an end. Um, so, you know, efforts like the poll tax, but also efforts like multiple ballots where you had to figure out where to put, you had to put votes into multiple ballot boxes. Um, and of course, also extra legal violence. Uh, these were these were things that Florida had in abundance, um, but we don't necessarily remember it that way. Uh, in part because the state, for much of its history, has a relatively low population. Uh, much of its act, much of these activities were in, in smaller smaller uh, towns, places like Jacksonville, uh, did not necessarily have the same kind of violence that places like uh, Birmingham or um, places like Selma or Mississippi, um, places like Mississippi 
And so, the, so there's there's different there's different kinds of incidents that really frame this rights movement. But if you go back to Florida and you look, you can see a kind of back and forth African Americans pressing for their rights in places like Jacksonville. Um, for instance, in the 1880s and 1890s, there was a huge struggle over African American access to streetcars in places like Jacksonville. Um, very famously, African Americans were successful in defending their rights to be on streetcars uh, in the 1890s, and and fought those those battles in the courts. There's a great book by a historian named Robert Casanello, which just came out about Jacksonville, where he documents how African Americans really assert their right to be in public spaces in the 1890s. Um, and those are really pushed back. Um, was that a book you just mentioned? Yeah, Robert Casanello uh, is a historian at UCF. Uh, he had just had a book that just came out from the University of, of Florida Press on Jacksonville. Um, his book, uh, I should know the title off the top of my head. You listening? Can you uh, you spell the author's name for us? Um, sure, Casanello. Uh, it's C A S S N E L L. That right? Oh my gosh. Okay, Castanello. Castanello. We can probably Google that and. Uh, and you see the book is uh, just coming out or about to come out? It just came out. Just came out, okay. What other books uh, would you recommend to our listeners to get a grasp on Florida's history around uh, their relationship with black folk? Um, I would advocate that they read um, African American History of Florida, which is a collection that came out from um, the University of Florida Press, edited by David Colburn. Um, I also advocate they read The Beast of Florida, which is a new book about civil um, rights in Florida. Um, there's a great book about the freedom. Uh, no, there's a great book about um, Jacksonville uh, by James B. Crooks, which is a sort of Jacksonville story, um, which sort of covers the history of Jacksonville. Um, and then I think there are um, a great social history of Florida is Land of State of Dreams by uh, Gary Mormino, which is a, a great history of Florida. And all of these books will give you a better sense of Florida's history and some of the problems and some of the accomplishments, right, that sort of frame the state's experiences. I mean, I don't want to suggest that, for instance, Florida did not have African Americans um, that were challenging segregation and 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 making community because they did, but they also had these very real challenges and these incidents where um, their freedom and safety uh, 
were undermined and attacked, um, similar to those found in other states, but I think at some level, because Florida is always associated with uh, kind of success as a sort of uh, place of paradise, a place of leisure, that we don't often think about some of the struggles that African Americans have uh, in the state. And so it becomes one of the one of the parts of the story that are left out at some level. And if our listeners wanted to make direct contact with you, if they have questions uh, for further information, um, how would they do that? Uh, well, I'm easy to find uh, at um, julianchambliss.com, my website, and uh, my email, of course, is at my school, jchambliss at rollins.edu. Okay. Are you on Facebook? I am. <laughs> Isn't everybody? <laughs> and Robert Casanello's name is C A S S A N E L L. Okay. And right. his new book on Jacksonville is called To Render Invisible Jim Crow and Public Life in New South Jacksonville. To Render oh, Invisible. Yeah. Uh, before we go, I just want to mention that Eric Holder, uh, I think this uh, Trayvon Martin case has floated all the way up there uh, because he's now fighting against mandatory uh, sentencing for nonviolent crimes and sentences and is uh, bringing to the forefront the discrepancy in uh, sentencing around drug offenders, uh, black offenders, uh, versus white offenders or crack right. versus powder cocaine. So sure, yeah. I think Trayvon Martin. Yeah. And, and there's uh, there's definitely some questions of inequity in the legal system, and those questions um, remain. Um, and with the Trayvon Martin case, I think is what it has done is like it's reminded people that to be African-American, to, well, to be a person of color um, doesn't mean that you get treated equally under the law because the assumptions about your person are not the same as they would be if you were white. And and that is a question that we have documented ten times over with experiments, with statistics, with, you know, prime example, even before the Trayvon Martin uh, decision came out, there was a great study on housing discrimination. And they showed in this study that African Americans were not given the same options as their white counterparts when they went into uh, to ask for a mortgage or look for a house. There was never any at the at the time they were there, it was never any sort of racial thing. The person wasn't mean to them, wasn't any kind of any. It was only after they looked at a number of, like, um, comparisons where they said they did this several hundred times with white people and then black people and Hispanic people and Asian people, as a matter of fact, that they showed systematically that the white people were shown more options and they got better rates in housing. 
And they, the only way, only way they were able to discern this was because they looked at a comparison of a large sample over time. And while African Americans and other people of color can say emphatically, you know, I feel as if this process is not fair to me, since um, they don't have the same kind of visible racial hatred that we had in the past. And this is a, the madly frustrating thing for, I think, for a lot of people uh, of color. Like, um, you're always asking yourself, is, did something happen there or is it, or am I just being sensitive? And the fact of the matter is that there are things happening there and it's very difficult for us to discern the, the full yeah, effect uh, of race sometimes. Very interesting point you make there in reference to the hatred towards blacks and uh, seems to be a residual effect across the world based on the slave trade and we get that in uh, Oprah's latest venture uh, being in a foreign country and not allowed to look at or purchase a bag um, in a Scandinavian country of all places um, yes, but you know, you see rising um Zurich, he's in Zurich, uh, was in a very high end boutique. Um, but you know, those Scandinavian countries have have a rising uh, right wing uh political movement in several of them, places like Denmark, places like Sweden, Switzerland. Um and a lot of the hostility is directed at immigrants, um people of color who are coming in, um, they, in fact, passed the laws which have been barring um, some immigrants from public spaces. But they have to stay within a certain area, which you and I might think of ourselves, well, that isn't that segregation? <laughs> um, but uh, the, the nature of the politics uh, emerging from the right wing in, in places like in, in some of those Scandinavian countries looks frighteningly like many of the, the policies and practices that we recognize from our own past. And and like those hatreds that we felt in the past, I think many of these uh, concerns in Europe are driven by economic concerns. Um, these people uh, represent a threat economically, um, you know, this, this this language of welfare uh, that we see in America, I argue that it can see being replicated in the critiques against immigrants and asylum seekers in in, in Europe. Um, and, it, and it's very telling that, you know, that same language has so easily come to the fore in, in, in 2013, um, just like it did in 18... 18- 1850, right? It doesn't take much for people like, wow, they're not like us, and so therefore... That's really surprising and disheartening uh, because I remember during the 30s and 40s, a number of uh, jazz musicians and uh, people of color who were actors and actresses found refuge in Scandinavian countries, Denmark and and whatnot. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, and and you know Paris was was a was a great destination for uh, African Americans in between. Um, and I, I I do think it's interesting 
Um, but I do think it has a lot to do with the, our sort of geopolitical uh, a moment. Um, the decline is not the right word, but the the economic struggles of the African American, um, the economic struggles of the developed world intersect with concerns about people of color coming in. And, you know, they're taking our jobs, they're they're taking our resources, which is another way to say, you know, asylum seekers cost too much money um, in the Scandinavian countries, for instance. Uh, those are those are classic, those are classic, classic, classic uh, reasons for uh, intergroup conflict, right? Like, we dislike them because they are. And then race just becomes an easy way to characterize those people. You know. Yeah, I think so you're it, coming it, up with uh, a topic for another show here uh, <laughs> to really delve into um, this legacy of, uh, or this backlash, if you will, uh, against African Americans and against people of color in countries such as uh, Denmark and other Scandinavian countries. Very interesting. Um, Looks like we're out of time here. Um, Dr. Julian Chambliss has been our guest here. We've been talking about the history of the Florida's uh, civil rights movement uh, here on the Gist of Freedom. I would remind our listeners that these programs are archived and are available at iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I would also suggest you send our producer, Leslie Gist, that's L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T, a friend request on Facebook where you will find numerous postings relative to black history and relative to the content of the shows that are brought to you here on thegistoffreedom.com. You can also reach her by email at leslie at the gist of freedom, all one word, dot com. And she'll be, if you have uh, program topics or questions, information that you want to uh, make her aware of. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. And I want to bid my guest and everyone else a very good night. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>